content with having talked Anthea into a crazy relocation to somewhere he probably couldn't have found his way back to if you took him even four streets away from the place and spun him round a few times. Barney had really gone for gold with his latest suggestion. A wonderful weekend of pure Pertwee to mark the centenary of his birth. 100 years ago. He had claimed ownership of the plan in its entirety, which had at least made it easier for her to consolidate all of her reservations and send them off to be dealt with by the one complaints department. He had answers to all of them. Or rather, he had a salesman's ability to get the subject changed quickly to something she was completely unprepared for. Which was, predominantly in this case, how much fun such a weekend might be. Anthea wasn't necessarily the sort of person who even had fun, unless it was the completely spontaneous kind that sneaked up and held her at gunpoint until she revealed the secret location of most of her enthusiasm. Being given the opportunity to completely dissect any fun plan in advance, thus hauling the details in for questioning and performing a full forensic analysis of the scene, was generally the way she terminated her involvement at that early stage. But it seemed Pertwee power was a pretty formidable weapon in Barney's battle to defeat his wife's considerable apprehension. The legend himself, of course, but also the debt they owed him as a result of his all-pervading influence in the matter of how they had ended up as a couple in the first place. They still had that Wurzel costume, as a matter of fact. It wasn't the finest quality. Humphrey had cobbled it together out of whatever he'd been able to lay his hands on below decks, but it still fitted Barney as many times recently as the parents of a small child who could not yet be relied upon to sleep soundly through the night could reasonably expect. Anthea had still spotted an awful lot of potential flaws in Barney's idea, but the associated idea of seeing her husband in that costume again, this time during the hours of daylight, had swung the case in his favour pretty decisively. She even speculated upon whether or not that was a mysterious precognitive reason behind the naming of their little establishment. There was simply no arguing their Pertwevian credentials, although people were welcome to try. They would be more than welcome. The guest list for the weekend had required significantly more thought, however. In short, they'd only been able to come up with a handful of names which might have been suitable, and there were no guarantees that even they would entertain the thought of surrendering themselves into her company for a whole weekend. Still, Barney had come up with an outline for the invitation which hinted at the sort of fun they might reasonably expect, as well as a photograph incorporated into the design of the invitation which hinted at the sort of horrors they could expect Anthea to have forwarded on to them courtesy of the Crowman, in the event they were even remotely considering turning such an opportunity down. Barney had been positive and confident and, damn him, he'd been able to conjure up similar feelings in her even if her own had the concentration of a homeopathic remedy. Four somewhat pesky regular guests had muscled their way into things without even knowing it, having been particularly proactive in making their bookings nice and early. A young married couple from West Smithfield and an older married couple from Blackheath. To be fair to them, they'd had to start early with Anthea's booking system. It didn't allow for any last-minute descenders upon the scene, that was for sure even if they could find out about the place to start with. Well, it was only right that a place like that should have chosen not to embrace these new-fangled modern methods of advertising. Business was still surprisingly good, even without that, proving that the ways they'd chosen to spread the splink message must have been working. 
It was testament to the approach she'd heard someone else use when it came to getting clients through the doors of his agency. Make it too easy for people, and they usually decided to leave you rather than take you. But make it even slightly challenging for them, and while some will drop out of the hunt due to a genuine lack of interest or just a pathetic lack of actual gumption, the ones who remain will be worth waiting for. It was probably quite unconventional advice when translated into the language of the supposedly customer-centric hospitality trade. But then the source of the advice had consistently proven himself to her to be one of the most unconventional people who had ever lived. He had found Anthea attractive for a start. The original Anthea, the one with the hang-ups and the put-downs. He seemed to have had his head screwed on properly to begin with when it came to reading people. It was too bad one of those screws had come loose and left him with the desire to do his best to try to read her. And it was very bad indeed that her attempt to screw him properly had somehow caused him to be properly screwed. How's Lovewell doing these days? Which one, junior or senior? The head of department gave his deputy a sharp double-take. Senior, of course. To all intents and purposes, junior does not exist at the moment. Oh yes, that's right. A long pause then followed. Well? Well what? Give him strength. How is Lovewell Senior doing these days? His deputy quite obviously thought about going through that whole routine again before plainly thinking better of it. Oh, he's fine. Good as gold. Meek as a lamb. Hmm. A meek little lamb being nicely fattened up for slaughter. Right. But you are keeping him busy. Oh, as a bee. This chap must have been flicking through the great big book of idioms. Because, you know, the devil makes work for idle hands. Steady on now. There was no need to go quite that far. Then again, he did make his bed. Yes, in that Lovewell QC had thrown a filthy old duvet over something Tracy Emin would have felt comfortable spending the night in. It had been down to the likes of them to strip that bed down entirely, sterilise the area completely, quietly remove all the debris, salvage and freshly launder what they could from what was left, and then present the finished article to the world as the sort of thing you'd want in your home. On the subject of which... He's presumably done his radio thing today, and I should imagine a couple of adverts for something or another. His colleague seemed ever so slightly reluctant to either confirm or deny that. What's the matter? I thought you said he was behaving himself. No, no, he is. He was reported as saying he had a bone to pick with whoever was choosing these products for him to endorse, that's all. Oh dear. A harmless little release of frustration? or the prelude to him organising an audition to find a few new dolly dealers. But you are watching him. Oh, like a hawk. My eyes are completely peeled. Talking in idioms wasn't a terribly professional way to go about things, especially for the deputy head of department. It would undoubtedly scupper this fellow's chances of promotion to the top job, if and when the head himself was removed from the role, for whatever reason. A welcome and deserved promotion? Or a journey in the opposite direction, passing Mr Idiom on the way, 
as the blame for another Lovewell outburst attached itself to him like a limpet. Stuff that for a game of soldiers. What about his chat show this evening? There's nobody on there he's likely to start any questionable conversations with, is there? Oh, to set the cat amongst the pigeons, you mean? Bugger it. If you can't beat them, you may as well join them. Quite. You'll be there crying over spilt milk while he's sitting there like the cat that got the cream. You follow me? Indeed I do. You can breathe a sigh of relief on that score then at the moment, because as of ten minutes ago, he had no guests booked in. A strange premise for a chat show, that. Does he know? Not yet. I believe they're keeping him in the dark for now. No point in upsetting the apple cart when, a pound or a penny, it'll be raining guests by two minutes to seven. Less than four hours to come up with an entire half-hour's worth of early evening televisual entertainment. Was that how these things normally worked? Perhaps that explained the way Lovewell QC's guests always seemed to be the same ones as everybody else was planning to speak to. Fancy that. They all just came tumbling out of a great big rain cloud. The thing about great big rain clouds, however, was that they had a tendency to come straight out of the blue. Now, if conditions were as parched as Lovewell QC's guest list, this was great news. If things were peaceful and idyllic to begin with, as had sort of been the case in their department recently, well, a sudden great big entertainment cumulonimbus could be a great big problem. Unless you could use the unexpected downpour to wash your hands of said problem, alongside any number of others besides. Every cloud had a silver lining and all that. Well, do be sure to keep a close eye on him. Absolutely. And I shall keep my ear to the ground and my finger on the pulse as well. Yeah, fine. Whatever. Oh, just a minute. What was the problem with the commercials he was objecting to? His deputy shrugged in an annoyingly nonchalant manner and then left the office, hopefully to make a bit of departmental hay while the sun was still shining. The head of that department had a nagging sort of feeling he really ought to have packed an umbrella that morning. Things were quite tranquil now. That was encouraging. But was that just the calm before Storm Lovewell? Scarborough. Lovewell QC had never actually set foot in the place, but being the voice of the resort in every medium going had left him feeling really rather fond of it. Were he ever again to get some control back of his life, he'd already decided he'd be quite keen to head straight up the road to get a bit of North Yorkshire air in general, and to experience some of the delights that Scarborough had to offer in particular. He liked the sound of a wander around the castle and a trip to the rotunda, a stroll along the beach, or a spell around the North Bay aboard a sightseeing boat. A bit of peace and quiet in the Italian gardens on Southcliff, or viewing the naval battle at Peace Home Park. If suitably relaxed by all that, he might even be persuaded to hire himself a floating park dragon and peddle his way around the Peace Home Lake for half an hour. If he could only get some sort of control of his life back. That was nonsense. He had complete control of it now. All that was needed was for him to refuse to do any or all of the celebrity rubbish which seemed to be perpetually lined up for him.
on that basis. He could have been in Scarborough with his good lady and young son within hours. The only problem being that would unquestionably mean the end of his legal career. Granted, there wasn't exactly evidence abounding that it hadn't been given the last rights straight after the Humphrey debacle. The only suggestion it might still be being hooked up to life support in anticipation of some miracle cure which would restore it to its former health was the occasional word to that effect from Walworth, that a former pupil of his, whose subsequent rise to the very highest levels of government had, in truth, probably only come about as a result of that connection. Lovewell QC didn't exactly trust that gentleman, but he was astute enough to appreciate that, without Walworth's intervention, Lovewell QC would have ceased to exist years before. And there had to be a future for him, or else why let him keep that fabulous moniker in the first place? Trusting Woolworth had then become something he had found himself obliged to do, virtually by default. Any port in a storm and all that. There'd been a bit of a storm in a teacup earlier on that afternoon, and that would still need sorting. For four years now, he had been compliant and thoroughly dependable. He'd adapted to being a radio host, a television host, and he'd sat in a host of recording booths doing voiceovers for a whole host of different commercial enterprises. But that Wednesday, they had asked him to toast and boast about another town on the coast, Brighton. Michael would have done his utmost to oblige, were it not for them putting him in the impossible position of claiming that both seaside resorts were the gateway to another world. He hadn't thought much of that slogan in the first place. It was meaningless flim-flam, and he'd been sure to make his feelings known to the people who kept insisting he had to be the one to record all this rubbish. It's a little practical effect, admittedly. They tried to tell him he had the power to sell anything to anyone, which was awfully nice of them to say, but patently rubbish. Hordes of impressionable people were not likely to descend on a place like Scarborough purely on his apparent say-so. Even the Lovewell QC ego wasn't going to buy that one. Even though Lovewell QC himself had done his best to convince it to. Perhaps the slogan was acceptable, if you accepted the other worlds referred to were completely different in nuance. And if they got someone else to do the Brighton gig. But he just wasn't interested. And he'd made those feelings known earlier on that afternoon. To little practical effect, admittedly. For someone of Michael's generation, Brighton was the gateway to a dirty weekend. He had been there, depressingly not for 48 hours of debauchery, but on boringly old-fashioned legal business. He'd won, obviously, but that was about all he could remember about the place. He hadn't been too obstructive, or at least he hadn't thought so. That was for others to worry about. He'd missed a trick in getting his point across when he called Louise, though. Sure, mention of barrister gear and schoolgirl outfits had caused the two visitors to his dressing room much obvious embarrassment, but if only he'd had the presence of mind to suggest a dirty weekend away in Scarborough with his wife, he could also have really nailed his colours to the mast on that score. It would have been one in the eye for Brighton, anyway. How's Mel's Angels doing, Rod? A good question. Why her immediate boss should have been asking her for any kind of answer was a bit of a mystery, though. You are the site administrator. Right. Well, that explained the question, then. 
She thought she'd told this fellow four years back. Michael Lovewell QC was simply too popular for her to give even half a toss about promoting him to the masses. Once his fade into entertainment obscurity was underway, she might evidence to that site with a measure of enthusiasm. Once his fade into entertainment obscurity was underway, she might evidence to that site with a measure of enthusiasm. Only might, mind you. As things stood, the thing was doing just fine without her attentions. I wanted to talk to you about Michael. Fair enough. Or to be more specific, I wanted to talk to you about Humphrey. Humphrey? She hadn't even heard herself speak his name for what must have been years. Since whenever the last time was, she'd made an entirely one-sided attempt to establish two-way with him, only to be rebuffed in the cruelest way imaginable. He completely ignored her. It's just a little something we've picked up along the grapevine, but it looks like there may shortly be movement in that direction. I wonder whether you'd heard anything yourself. Well, no, because Humphrey had decided to tough it out alone. What about Michael? Oh, yes, she had quite regular communications revolving around him. How else could she find out how and when that fade into entertainment obscurity would take place? To the best of her knowledge, Lovewell QC had heard nothing whatsoever from his son. At least, not directly. Michael had managed to utilise a network of prison informants, all of whom had been done a courtroom favour at one time or another, and they'd been more than keen to give the odd update on him. Humphrey appeared to have resigned himself to his fate. Being Humphrey, though, he had made it his business to do things just a little differently to what might reasonably have been expected. As far as any direct communication was concerned, to all intents and purposes, Humphrey really had vanished from their worlds. To remove himself completely from Michael's was understandable, given the animosity between them. But to remove himself completely from Ros and Eleanor's, that was a very bad sign indeed. Louise smiled again at this surprise visitor to somehow. There was really not much else she could do under the circumstances. An impromptu open audition, as she'd become all too painfully aware, was seldom anything to smile about. And even that was usually just the outward display of relief once whoever had been giving the audition had left the premises and had the door fastened securely behind them. Open auditions of all kinds were supposed to have been a thing of the past. She was sick to death of spending her afternoon sitting in that office, trying to dredge up potential talent from the stagnant pool of Brentwood's less gifted wannabes, which in itself was really saying something. She had far better things to do than watch acts which, almost exclusively up to that point, hadn't even reached the first rung of the ladder up to the dizzy heights of disappointing. And yet... Here she was again. This bloke wasn't from Brentwood, though, so there was still some hope. She'd already asked him where he'd come from three times, without registering anything about any specific location other than that. And now she was going in for a fourth. I'm sorry, just tell me again where you've come from. No, it was no good. She hadn't been listening properly that time, either. But there was a very good reason for that. She'd already asked him to reveal it three times as well, 
and she was now going in for a fourth. And by heaven, she would definitely be listening. And could you just tell me one more time, who sent you? She held her breath so as not to allow any unnecessary sounds to distract her from hearing his reply. Certainly, Humphrey sent me. She let that last breath out slowly, the smile returning to her face once more. Humphrey. You know Humphrey. That was the fourth time she'd asked that question as well, although it had been pretty redundant after he'd answered her in the affirmative the first time. In fact, since he'd already said it was Humphrey who'd sent him to her, it was a question which had never needed to be asked in the first place. Unlike the much more pertinent, and how do you know him exactly? From the prison. At the fourth time of asking, it was to have been hoped that he might have put a bit more meat on those somewhat naked bones. But it was probably her own fault for not bothering to find a different way to phrase things. Well now, this really was a remarkable turn of events. Whatever this man's connection was to Humphrey, the odds seemed stacked against him having the sort of attention-grabbing talent which would have made this any kind of professional referral, which left a number of intriguing possibilities. She could, quite happily, have spent the rest of the afternoon running through them all, except that her visitor was talking, and although she hadn't registered a single word of what he'd actually said, it did seem highly likely he might be able to narrow down the number of those possibilities an awful lot more efficiently than she could. I'm sorry, the prison? Why don't you start again and tell me how you know Humphrey? By which I mean, how did he come to be sending you here? <coughs> By which I mean, no. Why don't you start again and tell me how you know Humphrey? By which I mean, how did he come to be sending you here? He knew Humphrey from the prison. He'd spent a large proportion of his own life in different prisons. As he'd come to realise more and more, he'd wasted a large proportion of his life in prison, really. He'd always dreamed of being a singer, and he sang whenever and wherever he happened to be. Early doors behind the prison bars, he'd favoured upbeat, positive little numbers. Even up until only a few years back, he was sure that had still been the case. He'd figured he was lifting the spirits of those he was required to share the place with, and, in some small way, making the serving of their respective sentences a little easier for them all. He'd figured he was lifting the spirits of those he was required to share the place with and in some small way, making the serving of their respective sentences a little easier for them all. But then the other week, Humphrey had broken the devastating news to him that, far from lifting anybody's spirits with his warblings, he was in fact subconsciously contributing to much of the misery pervading the place. So with that in mind, could he, for Christ's sake, please do something about brightening up the songs he elected to cover? He laughed off the remark to begin with until his repertoire of recent times was pointed out to him. Without you, paint it black, mad world, against all odds, and the one which had shocked him to the core and left him more convinced than ever that he had to get out of prison once and for all and then make sure he damn well stayed out. Suicide is painless. 
he taken himself off to see Dr Young immediately. The advice from that quarter had been precisely what he'd already prescribed for himself. Service sentence, collect his possessions, and then walk through those gates for the last time and try to put his life in prison behind him. It was sound advice. The only problem was, he still had to work his notice period, which included having to help interview his replacement as governor of the place. Never mind, though. At least there was light at the end of his tunnel now. He'd gone back to see Humphrey, of course, to thank him most heartily for his assistance. Although Lovewell Jr. hadn't done much to help him at all during their mutual acquaintance prior to this, in prison or out. It was a matter of historical fact that Simon should have been a four-year pantomime veteran of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by now. That might well have been the release he'd needed to allow him to continue to work in a place like that, day after day after day. The additional modern fact that Simon had been one of the last people in that prison to benefit from Mr Lovewell's life-coaching skills said much about the clandestine way in which Humphrey had run his operations. His governor had been aware of them, of course he had. Ill-advised and just plain daft they'd been, some of them. But he thought it safest not to tell him he knew what his game was. One thing was clear. Lovewell Jr. definitely needed someone to keep a proper eye on him. Simon would have to mention that specifically to his replacement. Humphrey had told him, Take yourself off, sir, and think of one song that makes you happy when you sing it. Just one song? For a man who lived to sing? That had been a tough ask, and it had taken him a day or two to narrow it down. Whereupon, he'd gone back to see Humphrey. Okay, now practice and practice that song. That was precisely what he'd then gone and done, whenever and wherever he could. Although the accompanying dance routine had been the sort of thing which could only be rehearsed in private, until the day it was fit to be seen by any interested outside parties. That morning had seen dawn break on such a glorious day. Humphrey had told him, Now then, take yourself back to Brentwood and visit somehow, and tell the girl behind the desk there that I sent you. She'll see you all right. Louise could see him all right. In fact, the sight of him had left her quite speechless. That was fine for the moment, because all she really wanted to do until she could get her thoughts straight was gaze upon the only link she'd been able to establish between herself and Humphrey in more than four years. She couldn't stare at him too much. Evidently, there was some sort of costume change required for this particular party piece, so she'd have to avert her eyes if and when he reached for his belt. Unless evidence reached her in the meantime that there might be anything he could audition for her in that general area, which might have been worthy of a nice big round of applause. But she'd simply have to stare at him until that awkward moment. Humphrey had spoken to this man in the not-too-distant past. Not only that, he had taken care of him and helped him sort out his immediate future. Now it was her turn to do her bit. Here now, in the present... Her, a mere girl. Even from wherever he was, Humphrey still knew the way to charm the pants off her. Shame it was a skill he'd never taken to its logical conclusion. 
Her visitor was starting his quick change. Right then. Time to shuffle a few papers around and stare intently at her nails while trying to get a bit more useful information from the fella. Was that a skirt? Does Humphrey's door favour the women's wear, Simon? If I may call you Simon. In her experience, authority figures usually preferred the more formal treatment. Funny. That particular version of Pandora's dispatch box too must have signed the Official Secrets Act when it came to letting some of the authority figures she'd experienced in her time loose from their red tape binds. Even Mikey preferred a touch of the Mr Lovewell sometimes when he dealt with her as a figure of authority. As he would be doing tonight, with a considerable bit of luck. Please do, yes. Sorry, you were asking about my women's wear. No, I'm happy to let you just take me by surprise on that front. No, I wondered about Humphrey. He used to use women's wear as a way of getting attention. I wondered if he still did, that was all. She could hear what she was fairly certain was the twang of a suspender belt. Why was she trying to be coy about her knowledge while holding internal discussions on the matter with herself? She'd worn more suspender belts in her time than most women had had hot dinners. She'd enjoyed a fair few free hot dinners herself, courtesy of more men than she cared to remember, as a result of squeezing herself into those contraptions and making an entire evening of it. He hadn't had time to just slip that on while he'd been in there. He must have been wearing it already under his suit, just the way Humphrey used to. On the subject of which, she was still waiting for an answer to the question she'd now been obliged to ask twice. Oh, you were asking about Humphrey. Goodness, it was as if he'd been receiving private tuition from the man himself in the matter of getting her excited and then leaving her high and dry. Well, far from dry, actually, but anyway. As far as his day-to-day -day outfits out and about on the landings are concerned, I'd say he sticks very rigidly indeed to the regulations. In these enlightened times, we do allow for a whole range of individually tailored wardrobes, so if he wanted to embrace that side of himself, he'd probably find it easier than when he was on the outside. Ah, but if everyone else was experimenting with things like that, it would automatically cease to be of any interest to Humphrey. He'd probably figured out he could be a far more effective attention seeker in there by doing absolutely nothing to attract anybody's attention. Although, if that was the story, it did beg the question as to what kind of coping mechanism he was using. There had to be at least some surreptitious ladies' frillies involved somewhere, surely. I'm not sure what he gets up to in the privacy of his single cell, though, so there is every chance he's experimenting with all sorts of things I wouldn't necessarily know about. There were two things about that statement she didn't much like the sound of, although the one did, at least on the face of it, seemed to dramatically reduce the possibility of the other. So he could in fact be doing anything at all after you locked the door on him, but whatever it is would have to involve him being on his own in order to do it. The more she pondered that little regularly recurring potential scenario, the more she found to like about it. Well, he hasn't always been on his own, of course. He hasn't always been with us either. He's had a number of moves to lower security places over the years, but he always seems to find his way back. Oh dear. That didn't sound like a description of someone serving his time quietly and keeping his nose clean in hopes of an early release, now did it? 
How is he doing, though? I mean, really? She heard the sound of a zip being pulled up and decided to risk an attempt at making eye contact. It was imperative she got the point across that she wanted the honest truth there. He was turned away from her in any case, fiddling with something. Because, you see, he's a very dear friend of mine. Not that he's bothered keeping in touch with me, or anyone else I've been able to find while he's been staying with you, but still. He's one of the sweetest, gentlest men I've ever known, and I really do care that he's all right. Oh, I don't think you'd describe him like that these days. He continued to fiddle. Her curiosity continued to burn. He's a bit of a hard man these days, I'm sad to say. Humphrey? She found that almost impossible to believe. The thought of a hard Humphrey was quickly growing on her, though. Yes, he seems to just seek out trouble. Well, that sounded quite familiar. Bang went her theory of him settling for just getting attention by not seeking attention, then. Yes, it's odd, really. He doesn't seem to gain much out of it. Quite the opposite, really, you would think. Would you mind if I started my song now? Yes, Simon, yes, you fill your boots. Or your high heels, whatever. As for Humphrey's behaviour striking him as odd, well, yes, it may have seemed like that. But he would be thinking that from a completely different viewpoint to the one Humphrey was employing. His would involve a certain amount of common sense, for one thing, and Humphrey had never been troubled by too much of that. What Simon really should have been asking himself was how exactly Humphrey might be benefiting from an approach which had so completely baffled him. There was evidently something being gained by someone. Off the top of her head, there was the fact that Humphrey was probably increasing his sentence. Were Simon to look more closely in that direction, he might just get somewhere. Only, he wasn't going to be in a position to help him for very much longer, was he? Because once he'd come to the end of whatever his act was, she really ought to have been paying a bit more attention to that as well. It would be down to her to fix him up with something in the entertainment line. If for no other reason than to keep a firm hold of the only link to any recent kind of Humphrey she might ever conceivably be able to get her hands on. And because that must have been what Humphrey himself had intended. Ah, thank goodness. Bravo, Simon. Bravo. Now, just what in hell was she just supposed to have been watching and listening to? Be honest now. What did you think of it? Well, it was time for a little recap. Simon here had taken the time and trouble to find some women's wear which would have been much better suited to someone like Humphrey himself and had donned it seemingly for no reason whatsoever. Was that it? Perhaps she should have taken him up on his generous offer to explain this strange choice of wardrobe before he got cracking. Righto. Time to do a bit of retrospective digging then. Louise took her time in formulating a reply. A lot might depend on this little exchange. Because, of course, I thought having me sing I Want to Break Free was, you know, quite clever. Fancy that. If you kept your trap shut for long enough, someone else would come along with all the answers anyway. That must have been a Freddie Mercury impersonation, then. Stone the crows. You mean, with you being the governor of a prison? I see what you mean, yes. That's very clever indeed. 
The man smiled. The Tom Selleck moustache was tremendously over the top. Well, actually, half of it had very much fallen down. What do you think? Have I got any talent at all? That was a loaded question, really, wasn't it? There were so many things he hadn't yet got round to showing her. Any one of those may have revealed a hidden talent his singing hadn't really hinted at. I'll tell you something. You're the best singer who's ever auditioned for me here. That was a statement of undisputed fact, although it said far more about the subpar standards Humphrey's agency had degenerated to on her watch than anything specific about the performance Louise had just sat through. The thing is, I think you're just the sort of person the prison service needs. I mean to say, anyone can get up there and sing a song like that badly. Oh dear. Get your foot out of your mouth, Louise. Quick! You're better than that, though. Really? Absolutely. I'm just not sure you need to completely give up the day job in order to get these songs you need to sing so desperately off your chest. You know what I mean? It was difficult to tell whether he did or whether he didn't. She definitely wasn't listening to him either way. I have given my notice in, don't forget. Well, I'm sure there are ways we can work around that. I think if we could get you out there and singing, but not necessarily in any sort of situation where that might leave you in danger of starving penniless in the nearest gutter, you would be an awful lot happier in a job you're good at. I'm just saying. He didn't look particularly convinced. Would you like to get changed again? Well, if she was at risk of having to deploy some of her tried and tested persuasive techniques on this man, she wanted him safely on the other side of his reverse quick change before then. Always assuming, of course, that he wasn't intending to go out into the high street dressed like that. People were a lot more tolerant these days, of course they were, but taking a wonky Tom Selleck moustache along with you was simply asking to be made fun of. People were a lot more tolerant these days, but they did ask you to make your mind up as to precisely what conventions you wanted to be seen flouting and, consequently, what you were asking them to be tolerant of. He just looked remarkably confused. She began to carefully examine her nails again, waiting for the reassuring sound of his belt. I'll tell you what we can do for starters, Simon. What's that then? Why don't we get a channel up and running on YouTube for you? That's the way things are done these days, I believe. You wouldn't be a singer as such. You'd be an influencer or something like that. Humphrey's governor looked rather crestfallen. His moustache looked about ready to give up the ghost completely. Me? An influencer? You've got to be joking. I can't even influence your friend Humphrey enough to get him to stay on the straight and narrow so I can get him the hell out of there. Well, what exactly is he doing to defy you in that regard? Oh, she'd inadvertently looked in his direction there without meaning to. Honest. He was quite animated ready to get all manner of things off his chest, so that was a good thing. She probably ought to have waited until he was a little bit further into his costume change, though, before tapping into that level of emotion. As it was, he put one high-heeled foot up on her desk and was giving her his best Frank N. Furter impression, complete with some fairly energetic pelvic gyrations, a matter of mere inches from her face. She didn't quite know where to look, but she knew it definitely wasn't going to be at her nails. Oh, good grief. Please don't let Mikey ask her what she got up to at work today, once he had her over a barrel in the witness box later on. Well, 
He's forever taking the blame for the transgressions of others. Does that sound familiar to you? Let's see. 1985, him and her. Him in the tuck shop, minding his own business, and her getting a collar felt completely banged to rights. Her sending for him in the hopes he might think of something which might save her. Sex were the best for him instead of whatever equivalent should rightly have come to her. And then there were all those ridiculous charges he pleaded guilty to in court, simply for attention-seeking purposes. Right. Well, she'd certainly weeded out the motive in this case. I mean to say, he puts me in some very difficult positions. I know he's taken the blame for all and sundry, but what can I do? If I don't punish him for it, he just goes and does something else. It's making me look bad, but I ask him, what can I do? Well, he might think about not going into too many details with regard to the difficult positions Humphrey puts him in. She'd come up with a few ideas already and was happy to just go with her imagination. Needless to say, she was a more than willing stand-in for Simon here, who, while he was in the market to be so obliging, might like to think about putting some clothes on. Yes, that might be a start. Crikey. On her own in a room with a scantily clad bloke and she's worried about him putting his clothes on? Mikey's Professor Higgins had clearly performed a transformation on her to leave the likes of Eliza Doolittle for dust. Perhaps she should just try to ignore him, Simon. Call his bluff. Maybe he'll get fed up. No, I've tried all that. He's a master manipulator. Oh, yes. She was well aware of that. And a hard man. Did I mention that? Yes. Yes, you had. She still found it difficult to believe. Although she was more than happy to force herself. I mean, I've lost count of the number of new prisoners we've put in with him. Only for him to lay into them almost immediately. And these aren't wet-behind-the-ears types. These are old lags. I'll tell you something. It's got me stumped. And I'll tell you something else. I don't like being taken for a fool. Quite right. That was the spirit. Draw a close to that particular branch of the conversation in a decisive manner, then, and get back to putting on your trousers. Great idea all round, mate. What do I tell Humphrey about this audition? Oh, no, Simon. Not so fast. You can tell Humphrey that the girl you saw was very grateful for the chance to meet you. And she awaits an invitation to come and talk to him about you, in person, at his earliest convenience. So long as it's pretty darn snappy. That's what you tell Humphrey. Oh, no, that's right. I forgot to mention, didn't I? He won't see you. Really? He'll only see Michael. Michael. Michael? Do you know my husband? Oh, certainly. Forgive me. I don't mean have you written into his radio show and had him play your request. Or has he convinced you to swap your normal washing up liquid for a brand new alternative? I mean, do you actually know him? Well, I haven't seen him to speak to in quite a while, but yes, we definitely do know each other. Was it just her, or was the solution to everyone's problems almost absurd in its simplicity? Come on then, let's get hold of Mikey and let him sort all this out. How quickly can you get him in there? You must be able to pull a few strings. Oh, I'm quite low level really when it comes to string pulling. I'm not sure I would have enough clout to even authorise a visit from Michael. Not with Humphrey's record at the moment. Well, 
How would it be if I could convince Mikey to pull a few strings at his end? The skirt on that schoolgirl outfit had just magically become at least two inches shorter. That would probably be all right. Mind you, I don't know what kind of level he's operating from either. But none of that really matters anyway. Of course it matters. You said you would only see Mikey, right? Right. But I'm afraid it's not quite that simple. Of course it wasn't. Things involving those two almost never were. Go on. Michael has to make all of the effort. He has to literally beg Humphrey to see him. And everyone, but everyone, has got to know about it. Yes. That was never going to happen. Look here. Couldn't you just tell him I want to see him? Forget about my husband. Louise. Tell him Louise needs to see him. And absolutely nobody else needs to know about it. He'd managed to get dressed again without her even noticing, even to the extent of ditching that hideously awful fake moustache. And she still had no idea as to whether or not that suspender belt was part of his get-up or a large part of how he got through his days. What she had before her now was a tall, grey-suited, grey-haired and fairly unremarkable-looking sort of a man. Quite reminiscent of her own husband, actually, now she came to be thinking about it. Only his version was shorter and came with pinstripes. Definitely minus any hint of women's wear in his case, though. All right. You'll have to leave all this with me, Simon. Do you think you can do that? He nodded. It was a generous gesture on her part, that one, taking all this Humphrey versus Michael nonsense off his hands. Well, he was a man of fragile health, and the shenanigans of that pair were difficult enough for even someone at the top of their mental game to attempt to try to make sense of sometimes. I assume you're going back now and you'll see him. It depends what time I get back, really. It's quite a drive from here to the prison. I shall see him in the morning, though. He and I will be having a discussion as to how and when he might be able to get his television back. She hastily ran her fingers through her hair. Do me a favour, then, could you? Humphrey may as well not have existed these past four years. He's not been part of anyone's reality. His own choice, you're telling me. But you've made him real again. Thank you for that. Just please tell him that I love him, will you? Of course. Thank you. Now, as far as you and what this agency can do for you are concerned, have you got a business card or something so I can reach you? For all the time they'd just spent together, she still knew practically nothing about old Simon. She hadn't even asked him where he worked, in order for her to rapidly deduce where it was they were keeping Humphrey. Only my official one. I'd better not give you that. Why on earth not, Simon? And Simon who? While they were about it. Oh well. Like I told you, Michael knows me. We can keep in touch via him. Well, all right then. If their business dealings weren't going to be particularly urgent at any stage, it might just work. They shook hands, and after escorting Humphrey's governor safely through to the other side of it, she locked the door to somehow behind her.